Assalamu alaikum. This is Abdurrahman Murphy, and you are listening to Heartwork, the Virtues of Good Friendship, taken from Imam al Ghazali's Ihya Ulum al the Revival of the Religious Sciences. In this series, we read and explore the eight characteristics that Imam al Ghazali has outlined as the foundation of being a virtuous friend. He builds off of verses in the Quran, hadith of the Prophet, وسلم, and stories of the righteous from our tradition, and we try to apply them in the context of contemporary real life examples. At roots, we have daily offerings for the community across a variety of demographics, focusing on social and spiritual growth. Your contribution helps us grow and allows us to provide more for you and your family and friends. Become a monthly sustainer at rootsdfw.org sustain, and please honor us with a visit to Dallas, Texas. Welcome home. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome home, everybody. Uh, inshallah, if you're in line for coffee or drinks, don't worry. They're going to keep going, inshallah. That's why we have the mic system. Um, but we're going to, inshallah, begin. If there are any seats available near you, just raise your hand so that those who are standing can grab a seat, inshallah. There's a couple there, a couple there. There's some room up here. By the way, if anyone wants to come, I know there's no backjacks. So I'm so sorry. But if there's anything up here, inshallah. We ordered more chairs, so inshallah, it'll keep coming. Alrighty. How are you? How's everybody? Alhamdulillah. Doing well? Okay. MashaAllah. How's the coffee? Who ordered a coffee drink tonight, like an espresso-based drink? Yeah? Okay. Shout out to uh, Pax and Beneficia, mashallah, for being our official exclusive partner in coffee. And also my, my wingman, mashallah. You know, I, I want to share a story with you guys because a lot of times you read these books, these Islamic books, and how many of y'all so far, when we read some of these stories, some of the stories felt a little bit out of reach in terms of being able to apply them yourself? Like you read a story and the guy, like, you know, someone did something horrific to him and he was like, oh, it's okay, and just got over it, right? And you're like, there's no way that this is real life. Like, there's no way that somebody was able to do that, right? And, and that happens sometimes. And I'll tell you, there's two reasons why that happened. Number one, number one is that, and, and we ask Allah to protect us from this, is that we have, such, we have such difficulty understanding the capacity that Allah gave us to do good, that we don't believe that that's possible. We're so jaded by what we see around us, that's the only example that we can, you know, base our uh, uh, premise off of. And so when someone, when we read something like this, we're like, there's no way. There's no way, right? But there's a proof against that. And that is, how many times have you, at an earlier point in your life, thought that something was not possible, and then you saw it happen before your eyes? Whether it was the amount that somebody could pray, or the amount that somebody could donate, or the character that someone displayed. Okay. Number two, the second reason why we find it unbelievable is because you yourself don't give yourself enough credit. You don't give yourself enough credit. You think that I'm not capable of doing this, but in reality, you would be able to. And sometimes the best of character, the best of deeds begins with believing in yourself. Right? Believing that Allah has created you to do amazing things. Right? When the angels were wondering what the purpose of humanity was, Allah Ta'ala responded back to the angels. I know that which you don't know. So remember that you have something inside of you, you have the capacity for good inside of you that is truly miraculous. And I'll give you an example of this, okay? Uh, 
It's Saturday night. Uh, I'm at someone's house. I have a friend. Okay, so he invited me over. And we're sitting down to eat dinner. And another person who was there, we all brought our kids, kids. Another person who was there walks into the dining room that we're all sitting in, sits down, and casually says, Hey, friend, I'm really sorry. My son just broke your TV with a golf club. Said it so casually. So casually that all of us sitting there were like, that's good, man. That's a good one. Yeah, so what's new? And, he goes, and then he goes, no, I'm serious. My son took a golf club and smashed your TV. I'm sorry. Right? And in that moment, it was like the Matrix. You remember when Neo was dodging bullets? Time slowed down. Everyone could hear their heart. Right? Because it was a big TV. 85 inches maybe? 95? I don't know anymore. Right? At this point, it's like, it's just an entire wall of his house as a TV. And we're sitting there, we're looking at him, and within less than a second, he smiles and he goes, Alhamdulillah. No worries. Don't worry about it. It was old anyways. We'll get a new one, right? Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Now, that's pretty amazing. Yes? Okay. It's amazing also because like, when you don't see it, sometimes you can hide the pain. If you didn't see the action, you're like, ah, right? Maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe he was running and he slipped this and that. Then this poor guy loads up the security camera footage. <laughs> and we see that this was very much premeditated murder of that television. <laughs> like this was like, this was premeditated, okay? Like hack one didn't work. Hack two didn't work. Hack three, boom, the screen goes cracked. That's a three-year-old kid. Obviously, he doesn't know what he's doing, right? He's a Habib. He's a, there's a reason Allah doesn't count the sins for me. You know what I mean? He's looking at me. He's like, you still got a lot of sins. I got nothing, right? And again, I want to show you something. Remember, we talked about suhba. Who do you surround yourself with? You might think that that guy's reaction was miraculous. And wow, I wouldn't be able to do that. But then it kind of all starts to make sense. Because on that security camera footage is his wife's reaction. And his wife is sitting there, and she witnesses it, and she sees it. And my son and his friend are like, oh my God, he broke the TV! And they're freaking out. And what does his wife say, the guy who reacted so cool? His wife goes, it's okay, turn it off. Turn off the TV, because when you turn it off, you can't see it's broken anymore. The lines go away, right? We can all pretend that we're happy, right? And subhanAllah, I wanted to, as soon as this happened, I was thinking, man, this book that we're reading is telling us stories. These TVs are $3,000, $4,000. Can you imagine on Saturday waking up not knowing you're going to have a $4,000 expense? Can you imagine? You just get told. Someone shows up at your house. Get ready to pay $3,000, $4,000 for a new TV tomorrow. Right? Now, some of you might say, oh, the guy whose kid broke it should be. That's irrelevant. And the, the, the brother and the sister refused. They said, heck no. We're just going to buy another one, inshallah. We can figure one out. We'll get a discount somewhere. We'll figure it out. Right? We're Muslim. We know someone who works somewhere. That's how we operate, right? We figure it out. But I want you to understand that these stories are walking amongst us. The people that are able to display that spirituality in a moment that you would say like, man. And it's funny because we're sitting there, we're talking about this as friends, and all of us are like, man, I don't know if I would have been able to react that quickly in such a cool manner with such compassion and grace. Right? I may have bit my tongue. What happened? How do you get a hold of the club? All those questions are irrelevant, by the way. But our nafs asks them because we're searching for something. But the true 
muttaqi, the person who believes in Allah and has that piety, all those questions are irrelevant. Who cares where the kid got the thing from? Who cares? Oh, was anyone watching them? No? Oh, that's, that's unfortunate, right? And you're just bitter acid inside your heart, right? Why wasn't anyone watching them? Oh, interesting. Maybe next time we should watch them, right? And you start to go in this passive-aggressive, doesn't matter, right? These moments that Imam al-Ghazali writes about, they walk amongst us. And you have the capacity to do it. Become excited. Get excited that the next time someone does something or gives you an opportunity to go one of either way, choose the better way and see what happens to your heart. See what, prove it to yourself. You can be that person. You can be somebody that Imam al-Ghazali would have written about. Right? Now don't write about it and show, you know, hey everyone, look what I did. Right? But you could be this person. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to give us that sincerity. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. And we ask Allah to protect our televisions. Right? That's why we got projectors. You can't break that screen. Okay. Don't try. <laughs> okay. Bismillah. So we're on chapter number five. Chapter number five is Imam al-Ghazali talking about forgiving people. Okay? How to work on moving past people's flaws. It's forgiveness of mistakes and failings. This is a very powerful chapter. Because not a single person in this room can claim that they don't need this. Everybody here has to admit, I need people to forgive me, right? Whether it's something small or big, one time or many times. We all need it. So everybody here, this is a particular section in which we need to practice ourselves, but also we need to learn how to, how to, how to you know, maybe operate with forgiveness so that people can forgive us too, okay? So we started off talking a little bit about how there's two opinions. Imam al-Ghazali gives one opinion from Abu Dhar. And Abu Dhar, again, a companion he, who he himself comes from a really, really difficult past. And so his practice and his personal level of piety, his wara, right, his caution spiritually, is something that's very high. And this is a description of him, but he's not necessarily prescribing it for everybody. Right? Some companions, may Allah be pleased with all of them, they would do certain things in which the scholars that narrate these things would say this is a personal practice of theirs. Meaning it's not something that every Muslim has to try to do. Because it's something that's outside of maybe even their realm, your realm or my realm. So Abu Dhar was somebody that was very, in, in his personal circle, who he considered to be like a, a really close friend, he was really particular. And so he said, right, if your brother or sister turns their back on you, their duty to Allah, their duty to, their duty to you, then hate them like you used to love them. This is just how he was. But then you see that Imam al-Ghazali, now he writes, he's going to write a three-page argument, persuasive essay, about why he doesn't believe that this is the default. Maybe you have to do this once in a while, I don't know. A lot of people come up here after class and ask questions. Everyone's looking for concessions. The whole class is talking about being a better friend, and we're like, but what if I don't want to? What if I want to hate that person? What if I don't like them, this and that? And I said, look, there will come a time in your life where you do maybe have to distance yourself. There will. But that shouldn't be your first answer in every situation, right? How many enemies do we have, right? It's like we either have best friends or enemies and nothing in between. That's a serious issue. So sometimes he gives us these examples so that we can know that, yeah, in real life, in reality, there might be a person that does something so wrong, so horrific, so inexcusable that you forgive them on the day of judgment, but you may not forgive that you forgive them on the day of judgment, but you may kind of say, look, I can't, I can't be around you anymore. 
Okay? But Abu Darda is the other group. And he's the companion that says, do not desert your friend. Do not leave your friend if they make mistakes. Because why? Because when your friend makes mistakes, that's a temporary moment in a relationship that lasts a lot longer than that. The words that they said lasted temporarily. And so just as quickly as they said those words, they could apologize. Just as quickly as they did that thing, they could ask for forgiveness. And so he says, don't, don't set your heart on that moment that I hate this person. Abu Darda is saying this. Do not desert them on this account. For your brother will sometimes, and your sister will sometimes be crooked, and sometimes they'll be straight. So he mentioned this. He may commit it today, but he may give it up tomorrow. These are all examples. Ibrahim al-Nakhai said this, okay? Now, we told the story of Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. What did Umar do? Umar, you know, he got, this, he got word that one of his friends, one of his close companions, someone that he had good relationship with, was engaging in, in behavior that he would never consider doing. Drinking alcohol, doing all kinds of stuff. And this is again Umar, right? And so Umar writes him a letter, and in the letter he mentions Allah's forgiveness. The first thing he mentions is that Allah Ta'ala is the one who can forgive you. And then he gave him a little bit of a reminder, some nasiha. When the letter arrived at his friend, his friend said what? Started crying, he said, Allah Ta'ala speaks the truth. And he says, Umar advises me truly, and he came back. All right, let's continue now. There was another uh, narration that he shares, a story of two brothers. Here he means two friends. So brothers or sisters, story of two friends. One of them was smitten. Man, this translator is feeling it, right? Smitten with desire. It means overwhelmed. Like absolutely just like overtaken by... De- what desire was it? It could be anything that goes against what, you know, a moral virtue that we have. person was overwhelmed, okay? When he told, because this is a huge point we're going to talk about tonight. When he revealed his struggle... When that moment came to light, he was afraid, right? What are you afraid of when your friends find out something about you that's not so admirable? Huh? Judgment. What else? Hmm? Abandonment. Yeah, very good. The judgment leads to a lot of things. Number one is that I'm going to be cut off now. My friends found out that I struggle with this or that I have an issue with this or whatever. I'm going to be cut off. What else? What else do you fear when your friends see you in a way that's less than perfect? Resentment, right? Okay, very good. What else? Disappointment, embarrassment, right? Disappointment. Are you afraid that every time they see me, they're going to think about this? I know that it's uncomfortable. Everyone's like, I don't have flaws. No, you do, right? This is why some, some companions said, if sins had a smell, you couldn't sit next to me, right? Think about it. Part of the reason why we judge people so quickly is because we forget our own sins. If we remember our own sins, right? It's a narration that's attributed to the Prophet If you feel the irada, the desire in you to point out someone's flaws, look at yourself. Look at yourself. For every good thing that you have about you, and every one flaw you see in somebody else, you could probably come back with three or four things that you don't like about yourself. So, in that moment, this brother, this friend, this sister, tells this other person, like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Okay, so this is a big lesson here. How does he respond? How do you respond in this moment? How do you respond when your friend opens up to you and tells you that they're struggling with something? It's a huge moment. Vulnerability is not easy. And I hate to be you know, a little bit traditional about this, but for guys, it's dang near impossible. 
Like, we're just taught not to talk at all. Right? Someone walks in, they're a little quiet. Hey, bro, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Everything all right? Yeah, I'll figure it out. That's the extent of men's emotions. And, and we're told as if sharing the vulnerability is like the, the most unforgivable weakness in the entire... Like, subhanAllah. You know, how many of you guys struggled ever having as a kid like a sleepover at someone's house? You guys know what I'm talking about? Guys, there's going to be a support group for this. Look... <laughs> There's genuine reasons that as a parent now you can be worried about that stuff and I'm, I vibe with that. But there were some rationale that parents gave that were so silly sometimes. I remember hearing this. Oh, if you sleep over at someone's house, they're going to think that we're too poor to give you a bed and dinner. I, I taught at Islamic school, the same one that I got expelled from. I taught there and I'll never forget one of my good friends one of my mentors, really, one of my teachers, right? Nadir Najjar, like I love this guy. Every day we used to eat lunch together, man. We would share food. And he used to share, this is how in love with the Quran he was. You know what he used to do? We would have food and he would always have a cup of fruit. And he would always open the fruit and he would say, hold on, don't eat anything else, just eat the fruit first. I said, why? And he would have like grapes or strawberries, right? And he's like, just have one at least. I said, why are you so obsessed with that, man? He said, because the people of Jannah will eat fruit before anything else. That's how attached to the Qur'an these people are, man. So he said, let's be like the people of Jannah. Let's have a little bit of fruit and then we can dig in. So we're sitting there and then eventually we would call some of the students, hey, come eat with us. We were the cool teachers, if you couldn't tell. So they would come eat with us. And there was always one or two kids, man. We would have, you know, it was difficult. But there was always one or two. We'd force them, hey, take something. Here, take something, right? Teaching them some adab, like take something. If I'm offering you, you don't say no. Right? Al-amru fawq al-adab. Like, the command is greater than manners. If I tell you, I'm your teacher, like, you're in eighth grade, I'm telling you, have, unless you're allergic, <laughs> eat one, right? Let's have some barakah. There were some kids that said no, and then one of them eventually said, like, my parents said, don't share because people think you're poor. So ajib. Don't take from other people that think you're poor. So strange. We are taught from a very young age to, like, put up so many walls that just even like being honest in a moment is almost impossible for some people, especially the men, especially us. And then what happens? Marriage. And what's the number one complaint that wives come and talk about? My husband doesn't open up. He doesn't talk. Yeah, because for 20, 30 years he was told, don't talk about your feelings. And then now he's married to this woman and they're in a beautiful relationship, but every time things get serious, she's like, just tell me how you feel. And he's like, I don't feel. And then you got to pay someone 140 bucks an hour to talk about how you feel. <laughs> and I know, I got my master's in counseling. Like, I, I could be charging that. I'm just, and I'm not dogging counseling. I think some, it's very helpful for a lot of people. It's helped a lot of people. Alhamdulillah. But it starts somewhere, right? And think about it, man. The way that you are with your friends, the way that you are, you can't just magically become someone different for marriage. I know a lot of people in here are single. And this is not the reason why we come to Roots, but inshallah, you will get married one day. I'm just putting that out there, okay? Dating before marriage is haram. I'm just saying that, okay? Now, you got to do what you got to do, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't allow that in here, okay? In here, we're learning about Islam. Out there, uh, I don't want to see you, okay? <laughs> but I will say this. Don't expect to just magically flip a switch when you get married. Don't expect to like, not have any of these traits and then suddenly be like, I'm going to be the best husband in the world, best wife in the world. It's not how that works. That's not how it works. You can't practice something you've never even seen before. 
You have to practice these things. And part of the wisdom of family and friendship and all of that is that it prepares you to become the person that you will eventually become. You think you're going to be a great father? You think you're going to be a great mother or a husband or a wife? Or you think you're going to be great at that? Ask yourself, am I a good friend? Am I good to my mom and dad? How am I suddenly going to magically become this amazing person? Ask Allah Ta'ala to help us. So this friend opens up. This friend opens up. And he's worried. He revealed it to his brother. And he said to his brother, look, I have this blemish. I have this issue. And if you don't want to be friends with me anymore, I understand. Like, I'm not going to hold it against you. You can leave me. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed as it is. Who would want to be around me? He says, you can release yourself from this relationship. Like, you don't have to, you can tell everybody you don't know me anymore. And the other one said, I'm not one who's going to break this relationship because of this. You think other people will do this? That's fine, but I'm not going to be that person. Then he made a compact between him and God that he would neither eat or drink. Listen to this. Again, you're going to read this story. You're like, that's kind of extreme. You're kind of extreme, okay? Binging eight episodes of a Netflix episode is kind of extreme, okay? This guy didn't eat for 40 days. You stay up for seven hours watching, you know, and or. Like, it's kind of, you know what I mean? Then he made a compact between him and God. Don't focus on what he did. Just focus on what is being accomplished. He would neither eat nor drink until Allah cured his brother of this problem. You know, it's so interesting, subhanAllah. I'll read the rest. For 40 days, he kept asking him, how are you? How are you? How are you? I'm hungry. How are you? Right? He took an oath. I'm not going to eat or drink until you, right? Maybe mubalagha. Maybe he had some water and like a date or something. His brother kept saying that his heart was set. I'm sorry, man. I'm a lost cause. Give up on me. He's telling him, give up on me. So this person wasted away in sorrow and in hunger. At the end of the 40 days, this passion left the heart of his brother. This, this issue, whatever it might be, left the person's heart. He went and he ran and gave him the news. And finally, this person broke their fast. They ate and they drank, having all but perished from emaciation and suffering. All right, don't focus on what he did. What did he actually accomplish? You tell me. When you read that story, forget the fasting. Hmm? He helped his friend with the problem. Okay, go deeper. What else did he, what, how, how? What did his, what, what, what helped? How is the person not eating and drinking helping the friend? Huh? Support. The village. Knowing that there's someone there. I was sitting in one of my, my counseling courses, my master's degree, and the professor said something so profound, man. Because everything he said, all the students were like, wow. And he's like, yeah, this was discovered in a study in 1993 in the University of Alabama. And I was like, uh, my prophet said this 1,400 years ago. You know what he said? He said, my counseling textbooks, by the way, are all like hadith books. Like, verses, like the margins are just filled with like Islamic stuff. He said that the number one indication that a person who comes into a counseling session will be successful, the number one indication is that this person has people around them that believe that they can do it. That's it. He said, that's the number one indication. He said, if a person comes in and we're talking and I say, tell me about your friends. And then they say, I don't have any. The professor said, I know that we're in for a very, very long haul. But if the person walks in and he says, how'd you get here? He says, my friends dropped me off. Like, I struggle with this, but my friends dropped me off and they're going to pick me up. And they really want me. To, they're, they're cheering for me. They're, like, they really want this for me. 
then my professor said, I know that this is going to go well, inshallah. He didn't say inshallah. I said it, you know? He's like, this is going to go well. I'm like, inshallah. <laughs> what? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> so, this is what the Prophet ﷺ said, right? Al maru ala man ahab. That the person, al maru ala dini khalili, right? Al maru ma'man ahab. That the person is going to be just like the people that they love. Meaning what? Part of that is that this support system, having this village, this is why being around the right people can make you, can make you into someone that you never thought you could, have, you never thought you could be that person. You thought you were the, the stingiest, cheapest person in the world, but you're around generous people and all of a sudden you're paying for people's meals and drinks and you're tipping drivers for DoorDash and you're like, who am I? You're, you're, you're doing one of the preloaded tips. You're not going custom amount. You know what I'm talking about? Preloaded, all right? You, you never pray. We never pray. But then you, you're around someone who prays. And all of a sudden you start to pray a little bit. First without wudu, so we're not going to talk about those. But then you make wudu and then you pray. And you're like, who am I? It's, it's amazing what the company of people who believe in you can do to you. Okay? It is related in the stories of the people of Israel that two godly brothers were upon a mountain. One of them came down to the town to buy some food. He saw a woman who sold herself, her body, at the butcher shop, gazed upon her, fell in love with her, carried her off to a private place to get intimate with her. After spending three nights with her, he was ashamed to return to his brother. He had done a horrible deed. And now he's ashamed to turn to his brother. Meanwhile, his friend was like, where'd he go? Where'd my friend go? So he went down to the city and he kept asking about him. Hey, has anyone seen my friend? And everyone's like, we have, but we don't want to tell you. Like, we have. And they just kept quiet. So then he kept looking, kept looking. Finally found her. Him. With her. Immediately. Imagine like catching your friend doing something like this. Committing zina. You caught your friend doing this. Like how would you respond? Look what he said he did. He embraced him. And he took his head and he started to kiss his head. And he hugged him. But the other one denied it. He said, leave me alone, leave me alone. Like, I, I can't, like this is too much for me. I'm the worst and you caught me. And his friend said, come, for I know your condition and your story, but I promise you, you were never more beloved to me than at this moment. It's incredible what a person can do for somebody else if they respond the right way in those moments. It's literally make or break. And why am I telling you this? Because many of you here are younger than me. Okay, I'm about to be 35 in a couple weeks. 35, feel like I'm 45. Only one ACL currently. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, and the people who are a little bit older here, I know, I know that you're going to know what I'm saying. There are moments in your life where it, this will happen and it will almost be like slow motion. You're going to see someone that you love doing someone, something that they shouldn't be doing. And you're going to have to, at that moment, decide what your plan of attack is. Most people just ignore it and never talk about it, ever again. Right? That could be okay in that situation, but may not be the best route. Some people try to flex and, 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 and you know, become the most pious person in the room at that moment. How could you? Astaghfirullah. Blah, blah, blah. Very few of us are going to do this. 
Very few of us are going to go to the person and hug them and say, come with me. You don't have to say a word. We're going to get through this together. Right? We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us like this. And then, subhanAllah, Imam Ghazali says, only when he realized that he did not lose his status with his brother, did he actually get up and leave. He was going to stay stuck in that sin for who knows how long. And it was only when the brother said, look, if you get up right now and come with me, I'm, I swear to you, you're not going to be lower or lesser to me than anything. I swear. And then the person said, okay, this is my chance. And he stood up and he went with his friend. This reflects one school of thought, which is subtler and more penetrating than that of Abu Dhar. Remember, Abu Dhar was the one that was a little bit more direct. Though his might be more proper and safe, you may well ask, how can I call the other view more subtler and penetrating? This is Imam Ghazali now. He's like musing right now. Okay, he's vibing. This is he's vibing. All right? You might argue that it's not permissible to be friends with somebody who commits this kind of offense. Imagine walking into a, a masjid. Hey, my friend just committed zina last night. Anyone want to go out and have lunch with us? You might argue, I don't want to be around someone like that. I don't want, to, I don't want, to, I don't want my kids to spend time with people like that. He says, you might argue that it's not okay to be a brother or a sister with somebody who commits this offense and that the contract should be dissolved. We're not friends anymore. For when a legal relation holds good in the presence of an effective clause, <laughs> analogy dictates that it must dissolve. Meaning that if your condition of friendship is that both of us are going to do the right thing and then one of you does the wrong thing, then the, condition, the contract is done. We made a deal, you didn't keep your end of the deal, we're no longer doing business. That's what he's saying. He says, that's, a, that's, that's accurate, however... He says, friendships are not business transactions. If you promise me that I'm going to buy this from you and you're going to have the good and you show up and there's no goods, guess what? You're not getting the money. But he says, who treats people like that? You could treat a seller like that. You could treat, if someone's selling you a car and they show up with a Camry and it was supposed to be something else, right? Something like nicer. I know Camrys are nice, mashallah. We're Muslims, right? Camrys are the Muslim car. They show up with something else and you're like, you don't have to buy it. But he says this isn't friendship. In the case of brotherhood, the effective cause is mutual assistance in the religion, which does not survive the commission of the offense. When I speak of the subtler view, I refer to the way in which tenderness, consolation, benevolence are effective in recalling and inspiring repentance. What is he saying there? He says the whole point of your friendship is that you motivate this person to come back to Allah. If you ask... In any of your conversations with people, if you ask the question, is this going to bring them closer to Allah or further away from Allah, that should dictate to you how to, how to approach. If, it's gonna push, it would, if it would push you away, then don't do it. Then don't do it. Some people are so obsessed with doing the right thing, but in reality, they just want to be right. But if you see the Prophet ﷺ, his way of approaching people he always was playing the long game. Always. He understood. He got it. And that's why he was magnetic. That's why people were around him and they expected him. They were expecting him because when they dealt with royalty or leaders or whatever, those people talked down to them. You're not like me. You're not as good as me. You're not rich. And then when they met the Prophet ﷺ and he sat down on the floor next to them, and there was a man one time who was shaking out of nervousness. I love this hadith. There was a man who was shaking when the Prophet ﷺ walked in. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ prays Qiyam al-Layl every night. He's, he's receiving wahi from Allah. Wouldn't you be nervous? 
the Prophet walked in right now, what would you do? I would just faint. <laughs> right? SubhanAllah. This guy was shaking. The hadith says he was shivering from nervousness. And the Prophet came to him and smiled. He said, hey. And he looked at him and he said, I'm nothing more than a guy whose mother used to eat dry bread. That's me. You don't got to be nervous around me. My mom used to eat dry bread. That's his way of saying, like, we came from humble beginnings too. Like, I'm not a king. Right? People were magnetically attracted to him because he never, ever made people feel low. Ever. SubhanAllah. Right? SubhanAllah. I was talking to somebody. This is crazy. You want to hear this? You'll start to notice it everywhere. Let's play this scenario out. You get older. You got your career. You buy a nice big house. Parents are getting older. What do most people try to do at that point? Huh? Bring the parents where? Home, right? To come live with you. This is all we all say. And my parents live with me. Okay? I was with... Uh, uh, Imam Tahir uh, in Medina. Imam Tahir Anwar is an Imam in, in, in the Bay Area. He teaches at Zaytuna College. And we're sitting in Medina and we're talking and we're talking about just, you know, uh, his situation in the Bay Area. And he goes, um, yeah, uh, he goes, uh, my, parents, my parents live with me. And then immediately he goes, sorry, I live with my parents. And we looked at and he just goes, I live with my, I live with my parents. What's the difference? <laughs> Some of the mathematicians in here are like, nothing. That's why you can't write essays. Because he was in the, the, the way in which he presented that fact, it changed everything. My parents live with me versus I live with my parents. Now, we all know Imam Tahir is the one who's paying the bills. He's the one who, but no, maybe not. Maybe my parents' du'as are paying my bills. Maybe that's it. I was with Mufti Kamani the, the year that his mother passed. We were at Hajj together, and we were laying down in Minna next to each other, and he used to make so much du'a, and I would tell Mufti Sahib, take some rest, take some sleep. And he would say, I can't, I don't have my mom's du'as anymore. i got to make up for that. Right? All this amazing stuff comes from what? Not seeing yourself up here. When you see yourself where you should be, you don't get annoyed at the phone calls. <laughs> you don't see other people as burdens. You don't see people as bothering. None of that. None of that. I was with another friend on Saturday. Oh my God. Allah's just surrounding me with good people because I'm a sinner, man. Allah Ta'ala, I had another friend. We were, we were uh, uh, at Arwa. You guys been to the Yemeni coffee shop? It's beautiful, mashallah. Shout out Arwa. Any girls in here named Arwa? Not you, the coffee shop. Shouting out that. Right? And we're leaving the coffee shop, and we're on the way to the murder scene of the TV. <laughs> we're on our way there. I don't know if he's here. I don't want to say his name. And there was a brother in the parking lot, comes up to us, and starts telling us a story about how he needs money, and I need this and that. Muslim brother. Okay? And obviously everyone's got, ton I don't have any cash, I don't have this and that. Right? And I was, the, I was the dummy that was like, do you have Venmo? <laughs> and my friend, beautiful person, he's like, we're going to go to an ATM. 
Someone's like, oh, I'm busy. This, we're going to go to ATM. We'll go to ATM. He gets money. He says, wait right here. We'll be right back. Don't leave. Don't leave. Goes to the ATM, gets cash, goes back, gives it to the brother. And the brother says, thank you. Right? Why do that? Because I don't see this person as being lower than me. Would I go to an ATM for someone that I saw as being better than me? Yeah. So you go there and you do what you got to do because you don't see yourself as up there. So it's the case in this as well. And all of this parallel just breaks down the nafs, breaks down the ego constantly. Right? Okay. So he says tenderness, consolation, benevolence are effective in recalling and inspiring repentance for the sense of shame that uh, uh, endures with continuing fellowship. Meaning, when the person is surrounded, they're going to feel that motivation to come back to Allah. But the moment that we let them go, whereas when the relations are severed and their appetite is cut off from the fellowship, then that person becomes obstinate and they will persist in the deeds that they did. It's interesting, right? Why don't they change? Because no one was with them. No one was courageous enough to be with them. Don't hang around those bad Muslims. Really. Right? This kind of rhetoric is toxic. And people think that it works. It doesn't work. The only reason why you have any good in you is because someone in your life believed in you. Enough to spend time with you. Enough to guide you. That's it. If you were by yourself, you wouldn't be any good. There was someone in your life, family, friend, uncle, whoever, teacher at this, whatever. It could have been from a young age. I told you guys about the school that I got expelled from, Ms. Mahari, my Quran teacher. Did I tell you guys the story? This is wild. I got to tell you this story. I'm sorry. We have a presentation, inshallah, three-minute, four-minute presentation after this. I'll finish on here. I got expelled from Islamic school. I got expelled for a reason that was not true. It was a lie. It was made up, but no one checked. Right? It was, if you've been to Islamic school, you're like, I know exactly what that means. Okay? <laughs> no one verified. So anyways, my mom's driving me home, and she's like on the phone with the vice principal. She's like, you can't expel us. We quit. Right? <laughs> kind of one of those. We're going to be first, you know. <laughs> Egyptian blood, right? And I come to find out. So basically the way it worked, be careful, by the way, with your words. It was a couple teachers that spread. Unfortunately, a rumor got to them. And the teacher spread the rumor, and when the teacher spread it, it was sort of like endorsed that it was true. It wasn't true, actually. And uh, another day, we'll talk about what the rumor was. But anyways, another time, kids, another time. There was one teacher that didn't believe the rumor, and that every meeting that was talked about, they called all my teachers into a room and talked. There was one teacher, and her name was Miss Mahari. She was my Quran teacher. And she said, verbatim, I don't agree with her, but she said, someone who can memorize Quran like that can't do a sin that you're mentioning like that. Like, I refuse to believe that he did that. Okay? And it's interesting because I'm positive that everything that I do, even here at Roots, so much of what I understand community to be is inspired from the 50-year-old Syrian woman that taught me Quran. People are like, oh, this place is so like, accessible and American and like, this and that. Who inspired you? I'm like, this 50-year-old Syrian woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because she, she got it. She understood. Right? That what, what's going to happen? She used to say, 
about me. What happens when, if, if, let's say he did commit that sin. What happens if you kick a sick person out of the hospital? Don't you want him to get better? And you're sending him out to where? Public school. Dun, 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 right? The Islamic school is like, might, might as well be one of the levels of Jahannam, right? To, to, which, I'm not, I'm not saying it is or it isn't. But I remember her, man. And it's true what they say, right? Maya Angelou said, people don't remember what you say. They remember the way you made them feel. It's true. Your friends won't remember what you say. They'll remember the way that you made them feel. And the way that we feel the most, our nerves that are most sensitive spiritually, is when we are in times of difficulty. So that's why he says, when I speak of it being more penetrating, I mean that brotherhood is a contract on the same footing as kinship. Once it is contracted, the duty is confirmed. And that which the contract entails must be fulfilled. Fulfillment includes, you ready for this bar? Not neglecting the days of his need and poverty. Would you consider yourself a real friend if your friend was like really struggling financially? And they're like, hey, can I spend the night? And you're like, no. I just need to sleep on the floor. No, my cat sleeps there. <laughs> would you be a real friend? No. You'd be like, that would be the worst thing ever, right? Right? Yes or no, right? We agree. Would you ever kick your friend to the curb if they need help financially? No, not if you, listen, not if you think you're a real friend. And poverty in religion is more acute than material poverty. It's worse. It's worse than struggling with some money. Why? Because money comes and goes. Money comes and goes. You can get money in a lot of places from a lot of people, but who can help you with your relationship with Allah besides your friends? He has been afflicted by calamity and harm by adversity in consequence of which he is impoverished in his religion. Therefore, he must be watched and cared for, not neglected. No, he needs constant kindness to be helped to salvation. From the disaster which has befallen him, brotherhood is provision for the vicissitudes and the accidents of time. Brotherhood is the EMT for when people make, make mistakes, man. It is the triaging of their health. Further, if the man of bad morals enjoys the fellowship of the God-fearing and observes his fear and constancy, he will soon come back to righteousness and be ashamed to persist. Indeed, a lazy man in fellowship with an industrious one will be shamed by him into industry. You guys friends with people who work out? You follow them online? They wake up and they run 10 miles before Fedras even come in. And you're like, I have, now I have to go walk a mile. I shouldn't have this donut, right? That's what he means. You surround yourself with people who do something that you admire, you eventually become someone you admire. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us people of humility. We ask Allah Ta'ala to make us inviters, not inditers. We ask Allah Ta'ala to bring us people that make us people that are closer to the Son of the Prophet and that no one on the Day of Judgment can claim that we were people that pushed them away. Amin, Ya Rabbil Alameen.